We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. We're going to do verse 32 all the way down through verses 11, 1 through 11. I actually preached chapter 11, those first 11 verses, uh, a couple months ago, right before Easter. And so our treatment of it this morning is going to be more cursory, not really in-depth. And so it's going to go really fast. All that to say, if you want to know more about those texts, that sermon is available online. And uh, you can find it. It's called The Anticlimactic Entry. Throughout Mark, we've been dealing with this question, who is Jesus? And Mark answers this question for us in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says that Jesus is the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Son of God. And as we have worked through the book, we have seen that the first eight chapters or the first half of the book are dedicated to revealing to us who Jesus is. And that kind of culminates with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the second eight chapters of Mark are going to concern themselves with Jesus' purpose or his mission. He's headed to the cross to die for the sins of man. And so the disciples' picture of Jesus at this point is still a little bit blurred. They understand that he's the Messiah, but they do not yet understand he's the Messiah that's going to die for man's sins. And that leads them to be a little bit confused. The teaching of on discipleship, where we first started seeing some of these ideas, started in chapter 8, right after Peter's confession. And uh, there's been a pattern going on since chapter 8. I don't know if you've noticed it, but I'm going to make it really explicit. Uh, Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. Then the disciples, they misunderstand his prediction and respond foolishly. And then Jesus teaches them a lesson about what it means to follow him. And so those three things have happened twice now between chapters 8, the beginning of 8, and and the end of 10 here. And it's going to happen for a third time this morning. That pattern will repeat itself. So that gives you some context. This week was uh, our annual vacation Bible school. And uh, I was going to say, as you can tell, but most of the decorations have been removed. I kind of missed them already. Uh, Maybe even the song a little bit too. <laughs> Haley actually has it on her iPhone if you want to hear it later. Just get with her. Anyhow, one of the taglines for the week for Vacation Bible School was unknown to us, but known to him. And so to illustrate this concept, on the first night, students were blindfolded and then led to a place where they would hear the teaching for that night. And the point of blindfolding them and taking them there was to demonstrate the fact that knowing your guide is more important than knowing all the details about where you are going. So students knew they were at VBS, they knew knew they were going to receive some teaching, but they weren't privy about the details uh, or of the path that they were going to take to arrive there. The path was unknown to them, but known to their guide. I believe the disciples are having a, a similar experience today. They know Jesus and they're following him, but the path of the mission of God is still unknown by them. They know Jesus is the Messiah, they know his person, but they're not overly aware of his work. Even though Jesus has told them he's going to the cross to die, they aren't grasping that just yet. They misunderstand his mission, they think he's going to be a military conqueror, and though they are not blindfolded, they do not see. They don't understand that they're following Jesus on the road, not to glory, as they would conceive of it, but on the road to the cross. The suffering that awaits Jesus in Jerusalem is unknown to them, but known 
to Him. The main idea of the text this morning is that Jesus is the hero that rescues His people through suffering service. Jesus is the hero that rescues his people through suffering service. And our one big application, that which I want to exhort you to do throughout this week as you think about this text and meditate on it, pray through it, is that you as a Christian should aspire to be a slave. You should aspire to be a slave. We're going to unpack the text in three parts this morning. The blind, the faithful, and the ransomed. We're going to talk about the blind, the faithful, and the ransomed. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, hopeful, ready to receive a, a fresh word, ready to receive more of your grace. God, we need it desperately. We are imperfect musicians imperfect greeters, imperfect ushers, imperfect interlocutors, imperfect preachers. Lord, we are an imperfect people, but we come before you, the perfect one, begging for a glimpse of your glory. Let us experience your presence this morning. Soak us in your Holy Spirit and carve your word on our bones. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first time Jesus predicts his death, Peter tries to rebuke him. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You have your mindset on the things of the world rather than the things of God. The second time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, the disciples get caught up in a conversation about which of them is the greatest. And here for a third time, Jesus predicts his death, and look at how the disciples respond. We're starting in verse 35. Jesus predicts his death, and this is what James and John, the sons of Zebedee, do. They come up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Matthew's account actually shows us that James and John take their mom along with them, which is really, really lame. But there's actually kind of like a political, I don't know if it's political, but there's a motivation behind it. It's, it's believed by some that their mother was actually Jesus' aunt. And so they think by bringing Jesus' aunt along and having her ask on their behalf, it's going to gain them some kind of favor and maybe increase the chances that Jesus grants this request of theirs. So anyhow, them and mommy come along and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask. Verse 36, Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand when you come in glory. This request shows us that James and John don't understand what Jesus has just said about his coming death. It's as if they thought Jesus was saying, hey, things are going to be really, really hard as we march on Rome. There's going to be a time when the battle, it doesn't look so good for us, it's dark. But let me tell you, the the night is always darkest before the dawn, and we will prevail. We're going to come out on top of this thing. And so they are selfishly requesting prominent places at Jesus' left and his right hand. The The brothers hope to honor themselves while honoring Jesus. And I think this shows us just how easily worship and discipleship 
can be blended together with self-interest. Self-interest is often easily masked behind Christian behavior. So my first question this morning, if we look at the text, is, is are you guilty of this? Making your self-interest appear as worship and discipleship? Have you misunderstood Christianity as the means by which you obtain some type of power or social status or gain for yourself? Jesus predicts his death and teaches that the last will be first. And here James and John are requesting to be first. I'd say they missed it. Then verse 41 shows us that the rest of the disciples, the other ten, they're no different. Look at at verse 41. When the ten hear of it, that's James and John's request, they began to be indignant at James and John. They're mad. When the other ten hear about James and John, they get floored. They get fired up because I, I think... They didn't think of it first. They're mad because they beat him to the punch. I mean, Jesus had interrupted their conversation about which of them was the greatest, but he had not ended it. The 12 still seem to be in competition with one another. They want to be first. They want to be famous. Notice, too, the word indignant. We talked about this a little earlier in past weeks that said, What we get indignant about reveals a great deal about our hearts. Jesus was indignant when the weak, dependent children were hindered from coming to him. And the disciples here are indignant when they are hindered from obtaining the status that they desire. So I think it's worth asking, what do we get indignant about? What do we get angry about? What upsets you? And what does that show you about your heart? The disciples are trying to climb the metaphorical ladder by climbing over one another. They are thirsty for honor, for power, for prestige. They've left everything, but they're still seeking something, something aside from Jesus. The thorny cares of the world still threaten to choke them out. The allure of power and prestige and status has blinded them to what true greatness is. And so they are in competition with one another to become the alpha disciple. It's almost like they're on the the show Survivor, if you've seen that. Like they're in this little tribe on an island in competition. They're trying to eliminate one another until they can figure out who is the best of them. I think this type of competition is, I think it's ugly, frankly, especially among the people of God. There's nothing uglier than a church in competition with itself and or other churches. Friends, we are not in competition with one another. We're not in competition with the church down the street. We ought not look for ways to deflate and defeat one another, but for ways to build one another up, encourage one another. We should be seeking the good of our neighbor rather than pursuing our own greatness. The 12 are competing against one another because they're ultimately worried about getting theirs. They're worried about being first. They still have their minds set on the things of the world, and they are blind. And I think their blindness and self 
concern. It's not exclusive to them. It's shared by most everybody else around Jesus. As we look forward into chapter 11, if you remember, we see that Jesus and his entourage are finally making it to Jerusalem. They're just outside atop the Mount of Olives. He gets ready to mount a donkey, and he's coming down, and the crowds are waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And they think that Jesus is making a military declaration both of his messianic identity and of war. They think Jesus is going to deliver them politically. They think he's going to overthrow Rome and establish his kingdom like David. And and remember, as the messianic fervor gets to a fever pitch, And everybody thinks that Jesus is ready to take the city. Remember what verse 11 says? It says, And he entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He he did nothing. He was curtailing their messianic expectations. They expected him to conquer, and that was not what he was about. We'd later, the crowd would, would happily welcome the conqueror that would give them power, but later angrily reject the Christ that laid down his sword and gave up his life. I think we, like the crowd and the disciples in our selfishness and in our sin, are often blinded to the mission of God. We often blind ourselves to our need for a hero to rescue us from our helpless state. We ignore our sin. I mean, every person that has ever lived has been guilty of blindly pursuing their own agenda above God's. Every person that has ever lived has preferred serving themselves to serving others. Every person that has ever lived has failed to live a perfect life. They've broken God's law and deserve death and separation from God. That is every person with the exception of one, the faithful one. Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 32 if we want to rewind a little bit. This is where Jesus predicts his death. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those that followed were afraid. Many have speculated here as to why the disciples would have been afraid. And it's, it's my contention that they're fearful because they're not able to square Jesus with their own expectations again, right? They think military conquer and Jesus has just spoken a blessing over them, which includes with persecutions as part of that blessing. He's just reinforced his redefinition of the family. He's revealed the truth that the first will be last and the last will be first. In other words, Jesus' socio-political ideas which are radically different than what they would expect, coupled with his prediction of his death and his promise of suffering for his followers, well, it's, it's gotten the disciples a little bit shaken up, a little bit worried. And, and I think Jesus senses this discomfort. He senses their uncertainty. And so he again tells them of his coming death. He wants them to know that his death is central to his mission. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. 
Jesus is telling them here, those you think are the very best of humanity, the most religious of the religious, the Pharisees and the scribes, they will condemn me to death. And they'll hand me over to those that you consider the worst of men, the Gentiles. You see, Jesus is pointing out that the best and the worst of men are really no different. They have this in common. Both groups are dead in their sins. And all of humanity has rebelled against God. And all of humanity is guilty of rejecting his son. Jew and Gentile and you and I. Jesus continues in verse 34 and predicts, And they will mock him. Mark 15, 17. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail the king of the Jews. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him. Mark 15, 19. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. They mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Mark 15, 20. And they led him out to crucify him. And after three days he will rise. Mark sixteen six, And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Jesus' words here predict what is about to happen to him in Jerusalem. And they're also pregnant with meaning. He references the righteous sufferer of Psalm 22 and the suffering servant of Isaiah. God has sovereignly, purposefully, providentially, intentionally laid out the road that Jesus will walk. He is not ignorant to these things. He knows where he's going. He knows the cost of submission to the Father's will, which he shares, and he marches willingly towards the cross. He knew the cross was the only way that you and I could have peace with God. He knew he could only save humanity by purchasing us with his blood. Yes, the Father's plan was unknown to us, but known to him. If you want to say our lives are no different from Jesus in this respect, God orchestrates the steps of our lives down to the final detail. He determined the first day you would take your first breath into your lungs. And he's got it planned out to the last breath. And this should thrill you. It excites me. God has cared enough about you to plan out your life. Not only to plan out your life and craft a plan for it down to the last beat of your heart and the number of hairs on your head, but he's cared enough about you to rescue you from your sin. That's exciting. That's good news. It takes thought of you. Despite Jesus' words about his coming death, as we've already pointed out, his followers remain blind. James and John ask who might sit at his left and at his right, while the others indignantly consider themselves the greatest. Look at how Jesus responds to this question of James and John in verse 38. He said to them, You do not know what you are asking. This is maybe one of the biggest understatements in all of the Bible. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
Now, we spoke already about James and John's misunderstanding, but, but what does Jesus mean by the cup that he will drink in the bapti- baptism he will be baptized with? Aiken writes, Drinking a cup with someone speaks of sharing in that person's fate, experiencing his destiny. The cup is a common picture of wrath, of the wrath of God in judgment throughout the scriptures. Jesus will drink the cup of God's wrath on the cross. Similarly, Jesus' passion and death were a baptism. His being overwhelmed, flooded, and immersed in the Father's plan for him. Crushed beneath his wrath. That's why Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And in Luke 15, 20, he says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how it consumes me until it is finished. Jesus' question to James and John, Can you drink the cup? I think it's supposed to be rhetorical, because the answer is no, they can't. They can't drink the the cup. It requires a negative answer despite what will be their claim. The disciples cannot drink the cup and undergo the fate that only Jesus must undergo. Reason why will become apparent in verse 45. Only Jesus can be a ransom for man's sin. However, James and John answer this question with a yes, and Jesus will affirm them. Look at what he says. And they said to him in verse 39, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink in the baptism I am baptized with, with which you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. They will drink the cup in the sense that they will share in Jesus' destiny. They too, because they have followed Jesus, will suffer like Jesus. James will be the first of the apostles to be martyred. That's what we find out in Acts 12. And John will experience great isolation, great persecution. He's boiled at one point and eventually exiled to the island of Patmos. Jesus also informs them that the place at his right and his left have been prepared for others by the Father. Those places are not his to give away. The irony of it is, is that James and John don't know that to sit at Jesus' right and his left in glory would mean to sit at his right and left while he's on the cross. And that space would ultimately be occupied by criminals. Indeed, they do not know what they are asking. When the ten heard of James and John's request, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus addresses their rising blood pressure with verse 42. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What what does it mean to lord it over I think it means something like using your resources to to get your way no matter what. The person that seeks to lord it over thinks something along the lines of, if, if I have the power, if I have the wealth, if I have the connections and the networks, then I can get my way. And maybe, maybe that's true for folks that think like that. Maybe they can get their way, but that's, that's not 
the pattern that Jesus has laid out for us to redeem our culture, to influence it. Jesus tells us that society isn't changed through power and control, but by Christians sacrificially loving others around them. Loving those that don't believe what they believe so that those that are outside of the saving grace of God might be unable to imagine society without them. That they might find the love of Christ compelling as they see, they see that love demonstrated in the lives of his people. I mean, at the very heart of the Christian worldview, at the very heart of your worldview, is a man dying for his enemies. Therefore, the way Christ followers, the way you and I will influence society is through suffering and serving rather than power and control. Jesus is telling his followers that the way of the world will not change the world. He's saying that the way to true greatness is not the way of kings, but the way of the cross. He's reversing the status quo. Children are in. The rich are out. The first are last. The last are first. The served is small. The servant is great. Jesus changes the definition of greatness, but doesn't lower its standard. In fact, I think if anything, Jesus is raising the standard of true greatness. It's, it's much more difficult to serve others than it is to serve yourself. Jesus' teaching here is really, really hard. He's telling the disciples to literally be one another's deacons. That's the word in verse 43 that's translated servant. That's what the word deacon means. Saying serve one another. So, so think, think busboy, right? Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, you need to be one another's busboys. To be great is to be the busboy, not to be the the billionaire businessman who's eating at the table. God's economy is so different than the world's. It's so different than the world's that if you pursue the greatness of a servant, it will almost certainly mean that you will never have greatness before men. To pursue godly greatness means that it's almost certainly going to be the case in culture that they will not view you as great. The world will not see you as great, but as trivial and insignificant. Jesus doesn't stop there at telling us to be busboys, though. He goes further. Not only should you be busboys for one another, you must be one another's slaves. This is shocking. It's shocking. A slave is is a person with no rights of their own, who exists solely for others. No one dreams of being a slave growing up. There are no Disney movies about princes and princesses longing to leave the palace to live the life of slavery. Right? It just doesn't happen. But Jesus tells us that we become truly great when we become like slaves. Christian, you should aspire to be a slave. Jesus tells you to use yourself up for the good of others. It's hard. I mean, how often do we say we're we're happy to be servants, but then bristle when somebody actually treats us like a servant? I think our bristling reveals our failure to truly be humble servants 
to our neighbors. I want you to ask yourself this morning, am I seeing God use this truth about true greatness? Is he using this truth to change my behavior? Is he changing my heart? Friends, we must learn the posture of a slave. I mean, if you have to force yourself into situations that humble you, so be it. Jesus says true greatness is found in serving others. So what situations do you need to force yourself into? What would make you great? I mean, what would make you a great worker at work? Do people in your workplace see you as somebody that is trying to climb the ladder or as a ladder holder? What would make you a great spouse? Might involve toilet cleaning, taking out the trash. Might involve listening and having conversation. Could even involve changing diapers. In God's, in God's economy, the person that changes the diapers is one of the greatest. What's at the front of your mind? Serving or being served? What, what makes a great kid? It's not good grades. It's not athletic achievement or popularity. It's service. Kids, teenagers, serve your mom and dad. Do not miss the opportunity to serve your parents and your siblings. You're only in the house for so long. Might not be cool, but you will become great in the eyes of God. Don't settle for cool when you can be great. Church, we must become slaves of one another and so gain the mind of Christ, esteeming others better than ourselves, paying attention to their interests and their needs above our own. We want to have this Philippians 2 DNA formed within us. Is it being formed in you? Is God using this truth to change you? Are you becoming great in God's eyes? Or are you concerned with being great in the world's eyes? Do you want to sit at Jesus' feet? Or are you trying to sit at his left and at his right? You might ask, why should we aspire to be slaves and to become great in God's eyes? And I think verse 45 gives us the ultimate answer, why Jesus lays out this plan of service for the Christian life. He says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the great theme verse of the book of Mark. It's probably the most important verse in the book. It has everything together. We now know that Jesus is the Messiah. We know that he's going to die. And now he reveals one of the primary purposes of his death, which is to die for his people as a ransom for many. Christians learn to take the posture of slaves because this is the posture of the cross. C.J. Mahaney says it this way, Ultimately, our Christian service exists only to draw attention to this source our crucified and risen Lord, who gave himself as a ransom for us. 
You know, unlike every other religious leader the world has ever known, Jesus does not come to gain power with the sword or provide a noble eightfold path to enlightenment. No, he comes to keep a promise he made before he was even a baby. He, the creator, comes to serve us, his creation, by living a perfect life for us and by dying the death we deserve for our imperfect lives. He comes to die for our sins, for your sins. Jesus is your substitute. He's your stand-in. He gives his life as a ransom for blind people like us. Dever comments, the word ransom here means quite simply that Jesus' death purchased our life. The word really conveys this idea of redemption. It refers to something being bought back for freedom out of captivity, a price being paid for someone or something's release. The idea of ransom was used of buying back a prisoner of war, a slave, or a debtor from debtor's prison. Brothers and sisters, through Jesus Christ, we are those prisoners and slaves that have been bought back and ransomed. You are the redeemed. Jesus buys you back from death. He buys you back from the wrath of God that you deserve, and he does so with his blood. It's not a great analogy, but it's a little bit like being judged guilty for a speeding ticket. Jesus pays the fine on your behalf. You've been judged guilty of rebelling against the creator of the universe, and the penalty is death. And Jesus ransoms you by dying in your place. He pays the penalty. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary atonement is the reality of how God has brought reconciliation through Christ. Ransom understood rightly is one image, it's it's one metaphor that the Bible uses to describe this substitutionary atonement. It's a theological term that just means Jesus takes the penalty we deserve. The idea of substitution is actually very prevalent in our culture. I think a good example is found in the the popular books and movies, the the Hunger Games. Some of you may know them. But uh, in these books and in these movies, Suzanne Collins creates a world in which children and, and teens from different districts or countries, if you will, have their names put into a type of lottery system to decide who will represent their county or country or district in the annual Hunger Games. It's basically a death sentence for the 12 names that are drawn out of the hat because these Hunger Games are a competition between the 12 wherein uh, the 12 participants kill one another until there's only one left. Only one contestant is left alive at the end. And so all the, the counties or, or districts come together in their various places in kind of an auditorium-like section to listen for the names to be drawn and read. The main character, when she hears her sister's name called, she cannot bear the thought of her sister's death. And so in a famous scene in both the books and the movie, she exclaims, I volunteer as tribute. I volunteer as substitute. And she takes her sister's place. Church, this is what has been done for you. You have been rightly sentenced to death for your wrongdoing, but Jesus Christ has volunteered as your tribute. 
He took the wrath of God that you deserve so that by faith in Him you might know and love God. So that you might no longer walk in sinful blindness, so that you might see the marvelous light of salvation. I mean, we either embrace and love and cherish this idea of substitution, or we begin to slip into some kind of religion of self-salvation. I mean, if you don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, then you do not believe Christianity. So how do we determine who the many blind that are ransomed are? Who are those that are given sight by Christ? I think it's those that cry out to Jesus for mercy and follow him. It's pictured for us in the account that follows, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Above the noisy chatter of the crowds, Bartimaeus' voice is heard ringing out to Jesus. The blind man unapologetically acknowledges his helpless and hopeless condition. He cannot give himself sight. He's been cast aside and is completely dependent on others. He is a beggar. He boldly and publicly declares that he will stake his dependency on Christ and Christ alone. He looks a lot like one who will receive the kingdom. He's made himself like a child rather than like the self-dependent rich young ruler. He, like the tax collector of Luke 18, cries out for mercy and he will receive it. The kingdom of heaven, it is said, not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. Bartimaeus is desperate and his desperation is a doorway to faith. Friend, are you desperate enough? Weak enough, humble enough to call out to Jesus for mercy. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Check it out. Jesus stops. The crowd had tried to silence Bartimaeus, much like the disciples had earlier tried to hinder the children from coming to Jesus, but Jesus still hears the cries of the blind beggar, and he stops. Would you? Jesus is breathing life into his words. He has told the disciples what true greatness looks like, serving all. And now he's modeling it. He has time for the lowliest of the lowly. He has time for the unworthy. He has time for the beggar. He has time for you and for me. I wonder, what do you have time for? Jesus is on his way to die for the sins of the world. He has crowds at his back and he's marching towards Jerusalem. He's doing some pretty important things. And he still finds time to stop for the one in need. Pretty inconvenient. But friends, all life-changing love is inconvenient. We need to learn the art of stopping. 
the art of being inconvenienced for the good of others so that we might love them with life-changing love. Verse 50, And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Don't miss that last part. And followed him on the way. I want to point out first that this man, Bartimaeus, is not healed because he earns his healing and salvation by conjuring up enough faith. Faith is not a work that we do to earn favor with God. This has application because people sometimes misuse this verse to say that if you just believe enough, you can be healed. It's not the teaching here. It's not the whole, what the whole counsel of God teaches. So if someone has cancer at a young age and they die, they didn't die because they just didn't believe hard enough. They don't die because they didn't have enough faith. It's a lie. It's dangerous and unbiblical belief. Faith is that by which we obey the gospel. Faith reveals God's work in our hearts. It's the expression of having received God's Holy Spirit and the gift of His grace. It's not something we do on our own. It's not a work. It's not our work. It's God's work in our hearts. We will recognize our needy condition before God and call out to Him for mercy only after He has worked in our hearts. Has he worked in your heart? I want you to notice, too, the question in verse 51. It should sound familiar. Jesus says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Now, look back at at verse 36 in your Bibles. Same question, right? He asked the same question to James and John that he asked to Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? James and John asked for extraordinary glory. Bartimaeus asks only for ordinary health. Bartimaeus asks for faith. James and John ask for fame. Bartimaeus wants to follow Jesus on the way. James and John want to sit with him in glory. Seems ironic here that the blind man seems to see more clearly than the disciples. As with the blind man in chapter 8, the healing of Bartimaeus is a sign that Jesus is trying to open his followers' eyes. This time to see him not just as the Messiah, but as the one who will give his life to bring salvation to all. In healing Bartimaeus, Jesus models his lesson on the greatness of the one who serves. In being healed, Bartimaeus models for us a picture of true discipleship as he cries out for mercy and then follows Jesus on the way. Jesus ransoms those who call out to him for mercy and follow him with their whole lives along the path that is unknown to them, but known to him. Jesus redeems those that trust in his person and his work for salvation. Jesus is the hero that rescues his people through suffering service. Will you be rescued? Jesus asks you the same question this morning that he asked the blind disciples and blind Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do not deserve to know you. Do not deserve the great privilege of calling you Father, of coming before you in prayer. We don't deserve the delight of coming together to worship you with one voice as your church. Yet you love us the same. You died for us when we were your enemies. You have called us your children. You went to the cross for the joy set before you. That joy was the Father's joy and the joy of buying us back from the death that we had chosen. Lord, help us to answer the question, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, we want you to give us more of yourself this morning. We want you to help us to know you and to love you. For that is the reason we exist. To enjoy you forever and bring you glory in that enjoyment. Father, we thank you for your greatness, for teaching us true greatness. Help us aspire to be slaves that we might proclaim your glorious mercies to a lost and dying world. Let the blind receive sight and walk in your marvelous light. Amen.